Good. Well, ladies and gentlemen, um, very warm welcome indeed to this, the first event in the LSE's fourth uh, literary festival. Um, it's now firmly established in the nation's uh, cultural calendar, I'm pleased to say, um, and uh, this festival will run until Saturday evening. Uh, and with a whole series of events, as I'm sure you know, relating to the theme um, on uh, um, exploring the theme of relating cultures. Well, we're delighted to kick off the festival with um, uh, Professor Roger Scruton of Oxford University, um, unknown, I'm sure, to most, if not all of you, um, as a writer, philosopher, a cultural commentator, um, who I think must surely be counted amongst the most uh, thoughtful and influential um, in, um, to uh, contribute to, uh, uh, to public debate uh, in this uh, country over the last 30, 35 years, perhaps something like that, uh, whether it's on politics, culture, uh, music, the environment, um, you name it, drinking, beauty, Western civilization, English identity, um, uses of pessimism, and all as I'm sure you know, from a broadly small-c conservative uh, perspective. And I think in our area, in our, in our era, rather, of depressing, um, at least to my mind, over-specialization, I think the sheer range of his interests and writings, um, which occasionally and completely unfairly, I think, has laid him open to the charge of dilettantism. In fact, nothing could be further from the truth um, uh, and that is why his opinions are so um, keenly sought out. And anyone familiar with uh, his work is immediately struck not just by um, the range and the, the breadth of learning and his limpid use of language, but also by the rigor um, of the argument. Um, he invokes values uh, without sanctimony or embarrassment, or, and, but without, without priggishness. Um, and I think, and those of you familiar with his writing, again, would may have been struck, particularly in his more polemical writings, by this rather... Um, sort of elegiac uh, quality which that have, uh, which they have, but but which doesn't, of course, mean that he's given up the ghost in any sense of uh, um, of um, seeing mankind get to a better place, which I think does matter to him quite a lot. He's chosen to talk today about the culture of Europe, um, and note, uh, of course, culture in the singular, not uh, cultures of Europe. Uh, he'll speak for about uh, half an hour or so, uh, and then uh, he and I will. Um, exchange a few uh, thoughts on what he's had to say, and of course, then crucially, um, questions in the LSE tradition and in the Traditional Literary Festival will be open to the floor, and I'm sure um, you will not be shy coming forward with those. Uh, the Twitter hashtag for this event, if you're interested, uh, is hash LSE LitFest, all in one word. Maybe it's even written on there. Um, and um, so without further ado, um, ladies and gentlemen, um, please give a warm welcome to Professor Roger Scruton. Well, thank you very much, uh, Maurice, for that kind introduction. I, I've got to the stage in life where I think uh, the, the best thing for my reputation is to attend, listen to what the, the person introducing me has to say, and then quietly slip out a claiming illness. Because... Um, what I, I, I always feel that I'm not going to live up to the, the things that have been said, and I think this is especially true today because of the vastness of this topic, the, the topic of uh, the culture of Europe, and um, the v range of the interests 
that will be represented in this room and the number of people who will think that I'm uh, completely off target uh, for whatever reason. So what I, what I propose to do is to talk in a very uh, general way about how our conception of Europe has emerged, uh, whether there is something that we all share by way of um, rationalizing our European identity, and whether this thing is of such a value that we ought to strive to retain it, and of course whether we can retain it. Now it is obvious to everyone that Europe, in the sense that I'm considering it, is not a, a geographical area, it's a civilization. Uh, and it's a civilization that has left its traces around the world, uh, not least of course in the, uh, America, which um, for all its distinctiveness, uh, has never consciously denied its European roots and on the contrary has retained, as you all know, uh, uh, its uh, uh, identity from the uh, 18th century constitution and from the, uh, from the uh, English law which still ha has authority in, in that country as much as it has in ours. Uh, and you, this is an extraordinary thing which I think many people don't consider sufficiently. There are cases cited in the American courts today, which were decided in uh, English courts in the 13th century and are still authoritative. Not so many of them, but they are still, it's still very important that this happens. So, um, uh, and of course there are other aspects, other parts of the world which have retained some marks of their European, of the European presence from the past. Uh, so, what can we say about this civilization of a general kind? I think the first and most important thing to say is that it's a, a civilization that has been uniquely conscious of itself. It is at every stage, not just in recent times, but at every stage that you can look at, there has been a, a kind of tradition of critical reflection on the goals, uh, on the gods, on the laws and institutions, and on the cultural inheritance that people uh, have um, at, at any particular time shared. Uh, and uh, hand in hand with this culture of self-criticism uh, has gone a, a kind of refusal of the European peoples to bind themselves in a system of rules and procedures. There aren't a great many civilizations in the world with which to compare our civilization, of course, uh, because after all, Civilizations are rare achievements, uh, and uh, by the time uh, people get round to studying them, they've usually vanished. But I think one great contrast that uh, we could, could draw is between our civilization and the civilization of China, uh, which, um, of which there is a very substantial record, uh, and which does, to our way of thinking at least, seem to reduce to a system of, of procedures and rules and offices and hierarchies uh, of, a, of a fairly static and closed-off kind, which have very little in common with our self-critical and constantly dynamic uh, uh, way of proceeding in day-to-day um, day -day events. Now, quite a few uh, philosophers and historians have reflected on this, and famously, uh, Oswald Spengler, who wrote a book called The Decline of the West, as Untergang des Abendlandes in, in um, the early part of the 20th century, defined the spirit of European civilization as Faustian, 
referring to the great play by Goethe, uh, uh, play Faust, in which Goethe tried to uh, crystallize in one particular character what he thought to be the spiritual legacy of the European Middle Ages and its transformation by the Enlightenment. That character, Dr. Faustus, or Faust in German, became a symbol for Spengler of everything that distinguishes our civilization from others. It's a civilization of constant inquiry constant dissatisfaction with itself, always moving on to a, a new level of consciousness and a new level of, of self-criticism. Uh, and although one can say well, that's pretty exaggerated, things are much more complex than that. Nothing is as, quite as unified as a poet, still less a philosopher, would say. Nevertheless, there's an element of truth in it. But of course, along with this uh, inquiring spirit, there has also been a, a kind of uh, fractiousness, uh, a quarrelsome nature in our civilization, which, um, which nobody who looks at our history can deny. Insofar as there is a beginning to the idea of Europe, to the European experience, I suppose it has to be identified with the decline and destruction of the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire was in one sense continuous with our civilization, but it also was a very different thing. It was not the fragmentary thing that we've inherited. It was uh, perhaps the most impressive attempt to impose a single rule of law and a single system of peaceful coexistence on the whole globe, or the globe as it was then known. Uh, but um, we emerged from the Roman Empire through its violent disintegration under the impact of, uh, of barbarian forces from the north uh, who are genetically related to people like me uh, and um, who refused to conform to the procedures that have been carefully uh, uh, developed for them by their more civilized uh, contemporaries in the south. And this, uh, this led, of course, as you know, to the period which we know as the Dark Ages, the period in which uh, it could perhaps be said that there was no civilization in Europe, but there were memories of it, and there were patient monks keeping vigil in their monasteries in Ireland, retaining the, the ancient creeds, the ancient books, holding, clinging on to the Christian religion, which it, of course contains within itself uh, much of the memory of the Roman ideal. And uh, th uh, this was, I suppose, uh, th th these fragments that, that uh, existed during the Dark Ages were united briefly by Charlemagne, and um, from that moment on, a new kind of order began to emerge in, in, in Europe. But we now, looking back on it, don't see very much of that. They, that all that is lost over the horizon of much more recent conquests, or recent conflicts. Uh, and um, I think people who ask the question today, what is Europe and what does it mean, what is its culture and civilization, have much more, are much more concerned with the recent, more recent violence and in particular with the destruction uh, of our continent during two, uh, the, um, the two world wars. So we, we tend to think that we must construct a new history of Europe which doesn't see it quite in the linear terms that uh, might have been um, taught by our ancestors in the Victorian period. A, a history of Europe that 
attempts to give uh, an account of what we are here and now and why it is that Europe is important to us. Now, uh, this uh, is an important point, in fact, because <coughs> I think most historians would agree that any written history uh, has also a hidden agenda. It may be an attempt to give the principal facts, but it, these are always the facts as the historian sees them and the facts as the historian thinks his readers ought to know them. Uh, and since there are infinitely many historical facts, inevitably the work of history is selective. Uh, it it, it con consists in selecting those uh, narratives which, which appear coherent to the author and also can be understood as coherent by his readers. Uh, and inevitably, therefore, in the writing of history, there is an, a mythical element. We are telling a story about how we came to be the thing that we are, and that story uh, has other purposes than simply giving the truth. I was brought up at a time when uh, history... Uh, was, uh, as taught in our schools, was primarily national history. And it did begin uh, in the uh, Anglo-Saxon period, the period uh, of Charlemagne and so on, the period before the Norman Conquest. It told the story of what the English people uh, did by way of shaping the laws and institutions of their country. It told the story of kings and battles, conquests and defeats, uh, and attempts, the, the attempts of the English to establish a legitimate rule in this island and to come to terms with the um, barbarians to the north of them uh, and uh, eventually accept that those barbarians weren't any such thing at all but probably more civilized than themselves. And this, uh, uh, as a result of this, there emerged, of course, the idea of Britain uh, during the late 17th and, and early 18th century. Uh, and uh, uh, the history story continued thereafter as a story essentially endorsing our native sense of entitlement to the country that is ours. And that um, national history did a lot of good, of course, to people who, when they came to fighting two world wars, who had to know why they were doing it. What was it that united them? What was it that brought them together and justified uh, the hu huge sacrifices that they would have to make in order not to live henceforth under German domination. And I think most people accepted that they went into the uh, First World War and into the Second World War rightly uh, and with a, a, a just cause and with a duty to defend their territory from invasion. Now that, uh, that history that we were taught as you, I'm sure, know, would now be dismissed as a collection of self-serving myths by the, uh, the intellectual establishment. The, the, the modern, or rather postmodern, uh, professor of history will tell you that uh, all this is simply there uh, in order to endorse a given arrangement, the, the present tense arrangement. Uh, and the past is invented, it's an invented past in order to give legitimacy to quite, uh, uh, arrangements that could easily be changed and would be changed were it not for the existence of this myth-making. That is the kind of view of history that you get uh, propagated by Eric Hobsbawm and people like that uh, of Marxist persuasion who have been immensely influential on shaping the, reshaping the curriculum in our schools so as to forbid 
national history and put in its place another narrative, a narrative about the illegitimacy of empire, about the uh, oppression of the working classes during the 19th century, about the emergence uh, of the women's movement as the principal event in the early 20th century and so on. A different kind of myth, of course, uh, but one that, uh, whose, whose moral uh, uh, significance is to uh, plant the seeds of, of doubt about one's past rather than certainty and confidence in it. A sense that somehow one has arrived in this privileged position not by uh, legitimate actions uh, and noble sacrifices but rather by the um, exploitation and oppression of people who, didn't, who would have deserved something better. And that means, of course, that people lose confidence. The idea of the nation as having a legitimate place in this world um, uh, suffers a, a serious blow. Uh, and in place of it, people look around for an alternative narrative. What are we to believe in if we're not to believe in that? And it's in this context, I think, that people are asking the question about Europe. Given that um, the European institutions themselves uh, are claiming a kind of legitimacy which they think the nation state is not entitled to, uh, we need to discover, if we can, an alternative narrative that will give us some confidence that even if we're not allowed to be English, which we're not, uh, and perhaps not even British, we could at least be European. So what would this uh, narrative consist in? Well, I think we have to recognize that there has been a desire in the political class, at least, especially in the European political class, to marginalize the main force that created our civilization, namely the Christian religion. And this, you will see, remember this, of course, from the, the, all the debates over the so-called European Constitution which is a document far too long to be a constitution or even a, a law of any kind at all. But nevertheless, um, uh, at the time, it was the question was raised whether the preamble shouldn't at least mention uh, the Christian religion, uh, and it was decided that it should not. Uh, and I think many people felt, well, in that case, this is a constitution for just about anywhere. It isn't a constitution for Europe in, in particular. Uh, it could be, it's a sort of, um, if you like, an abstract idea of a constitution rather than a politically uh, and um, historically rooted one. So I, I think one should, whether, whatever one thinks about the Christian religion, one should look back at what it has bestowed upon Europe and upon our culture in general. <clears throat> and there's an old idea, which I think still has validity, that, that the Europe that we know emerged during the decline of the Roman Empire from a, a strange synthesis, the synthesis of Jerusalem and Rome, the synthesis of the monotheistic religion of the Jews uh, in its Christian version, and the secular rule of law that the Romans had introduced. And this is a ra remarkable combination. And the Romans, as you know, were, were polytheists insofar as they believed in any god at all, but on the whole, they recognized that, god, that the gods were, were essentially artifacts but um, uh, the, the, the Jews didn't think that. The Jews thought that God exists, that God is, is sovereign of the universe, and that his law must be obeyed. So it, it's very odd to think that this could be combined with the Roman idea of, of a secular rule of law in which laws are man-made and not imposed by God. 
And yet, this synthesis occurred. It occurred very early on um, in the, uh, after the Dark Ages, both in, in France and in, um, in England, and gradually elsewhere. It, it became clear to, to people that if we are to live in this newly emerging civilization, our law, we, we need a rule of law, and these laws must be adaptable to our changing circumstances. Therefore, the idea of a divine law should be marginalized. And this, um, this led, to the, uh, of course, to, to the bifurcation of authority in, in Europe throughout the Middle Ages, with the emperor standing for a, a secular jurisdiction and the pope for a religious one. And in our, our own country, of in, in England, almost all of uh, medieval history is marked by this conflict between the secular law imposed by the sovereign uh, and the uh, uh, religious law, so-called canon law, uh, imposed by, or attempted to be imposed by the Pope. And as you know, the secular law won. Uh, and it is... Uh, people accepted that um, when there's a conflict between what the sovereign's law requires and what the so-called divine law propagated by the priests uh, requires, then it's the sovereign's law that prevails. This um, is by no means a, a defiance of the Christian faith because Christ himself had said the same in the famous parable of the tribute money in St. Matthew's Gospel, in which, he, which concludes by him saying, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, and unto God what is God's. Meaning, in the matters of this world, where we have to live in peace with our neighbors, uh, then it is secular law, the law of Caesar that prevails. But when it comes to the salvation of your soul, of course, there you must bow down uh, to the higher authority of God. But the assumption is that these two won't conflict. So this, I, uh, this coming together of monotheistic religion and secular law is, I think, a fundamental part of the European inheritance. And um, it, 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 the idea of secular law is much older than the Enlightenment, uh, and seemingly it's unappreciated by our current elites. Now, there have been in Europe three kinds of war uh, since, uh, since the emergence of the European uh, experience in the eighth uh, and ninth centuries the, the first there were dynastic laws law, uh, dynastic wars wars between competing sovereigns or competing claims of people to be sovereign over given territories and given peoples uh, and as as you know from the middle middle ages uh, from, uh, the history of the middle ages these wars were pretty terrible and would last uh, and the famous one lasted for a hundred years um, uh, and our own country was shaped by this conflict during which we both gained a chunk of France and then lost it again uh, and unfortunately the best bit of France the bit where um, claret is made but uh, however it, it, we, we've all become reconciled to this in, in, Duke, in the end um, and um, of course it's one of the great advantages of the new arrangements that we don't have to worry about the, our supplies anymore but these, these, uh, this, these dynastic wars were replaced, of course, at the, Re at the Reformation uh, by religious wars, which were much more um, difficult to 
to settle. You can settle a dynastic war if you can just get the parties to sit at a table together and say, look, you have this bit, I'll have that bit. But it's very hard to get Protestants and Catholics in the fervor of their first enthusiasms to sit at a table together and divide up the world because each of them is claiming the whole of everything. And we know this from our current worries over Islamism that uh, a, religious, a religiously motivated belligerence doesn't recognize boundaries. It is, it is a, it, in the business of converting the world and possessing the souls of everyone. So the religious conflicts were extremely destructive and left, us, left Europe in, in ruins during the 17th century. Uh, but um, were finally settled by division of territory and by a, a, an affirmation of a new kind of, uh, of um, loyalty, not loyalty to a sovereign or loyalty to a, a faith, but loyalty to a nation. Uh, and this uh, began at the Treaty of Westphalia and, uh, of course, this became a, a European norm during the next two or three hundred years that our primary loyalties are now national rather than religious or dynastic. And I think this is such equilibrium as Europe has achieved, has been achieved through uh, the defining of national boundaries and the maintenance of law within them. Uh, in saying that, I go against the whole orthodoxy uh, of the European Union's ideology, uh, but my own view is that that ideology is founded on ignorance and wishful thinking, and that we really need to look carefully at the national idea and what it has meant for us, uh, and not simply dwell upon the ways in which it's gone wrong. But uh, I, I know I, I'm now proceeding towards a, some kind of conclusion. Uh, what has happened more recently is that partly because of the difficulties created by, these, by, by wars which have a national origin, uh, there has been an increasing emphasis on the Enlightenment as what is, what is special to Europe. Not the Christian religion or the synthesis of Jerusalem and Rome, but rather that uh, episode, partly intellectual, partly uh, political, um, uh, and partly social, which occurred during the 18th century, well, from the beginning of the scientific revolution to the end of the 18th century, uh, which we know as the Enlightenment in, in retrospect. But I think one has to be very careful about taking the Enlightenment as the defining episode in European history. The first thing to, to recognize is that, that um, it created two very different forms uh, of political order. In France, it led to the French Revolution, uh, which um, was an extremely de destabilizing event, le which led to not just to genocide, but to the export of, of violence to all neighboring countries. In Britain, it led, to, in a pretty different way, eventually to the, the first movements towards democratic government in the Reform Act of 1832. And I think uh, that if you trace the, uh, the um, intellectual and, uh, and moral history uh, of those events, you'll see that they both, of course, begin in the, in the scientific revolution and the kind of political and, uh, and moral thinking that began then, but that they are deeply opposed. Uh, and um, so that just simply to emphasize the Enlightenment as though it was something positive uh, is to forget that the Enlightenment had this incredibly destabilizing effect as well. 
uh, and um, uh, in France in particular, um, the stability was only restored uh, by Napoleon after two million people had already died in France, uh, uh, and um, Napoleon restored peace in France by exporting war to everywhere else, uh, which is the normal way, by the way, of creating peace, uh, and um, it's why peace is dangerous. So, so uh, this emphasis on the Enlightenment is something which I think, uh, well, maybe we will discuss this afterwards, but it is something which I think we ought to uh, uh, be prepared to revise. Uh, what we now have, uh, for good or ill, is a peace among nation-states of Europe upon which has been erected a kind of uh, political structure, a transnational structure of a, 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 an increasingly non-democratic kind, which um, indeed has begun to, de uh, as you know, dethrone the elected prime minister's of European countries in order to impose technocrats from above. This is what's happened in Greece and in, in, in Italy and the European Union is obviously gearing up to do the same thing in, in Hungary too. So uh, we are in a difficult position to, uh, because we don't really know whether that is, uh, is the end of, our of European democracy or on what grounds those kind of actions can legitimise themselves. So I, I will conclude with, with um, just giving six points which I think we need to hold on to, six, six uh, uh, features of our European inheritance which I think not only define it as a, as a civilization worthy of, uh, of our respect, but which are th uh, things which we could uh, possibly still hold on to in the light of all the difficulties that we're about to encounter. The first of these things uh, is, of, of course, the spiritual inheritance of Christianity. Uh, most people in this room, I suspect, uh, don't believe in any particular religion, or if they do, they, 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 it's unlikely to be Christianity. I think that that's my experience of universities anyway. I agree that there might be some real people as well as uh, university people in this room. <laughs> but um, nevertheless, we know that we are going through a period uh, of, if you like, publicly accepted doubt. Where, where people are in retreat from Christian principles and indeed there is some evidence that people are beginning to be persecuted for them especially if they conflict, which they do, with certain uh, 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 secular causes like gay liberation and so on uh, and we've seen uh, some serious cases in, in our courts along those lines but nevertheless, even among people who don't believe there is a spiritual inheritance which I think all of us recognize uh, which comes to us from Christianity and ultimately from, from Judaism and which is encapsulated in the second uh, uh, commandment of the two that Christ gave us. If you, he said, love God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. Repeating something which you find in uh, in the book of Deuteronomy in the Old Testament. Uh, we might not want to adhere to that first commandment, though I think myself that we should, 
But all of us feel the, the power of the second commandment, to love your neighbor as yourself. And, and, they, and when I say neighbor, I, th I really mean neighbor, the, the, the person who is adjacent to you, not the person who, who shares your faith or your ethnic group or your, or, um, or your class or your, your uh, school or whatever, but the person who is adjacent to you. This is uh, illustrated by Christ famously in the story of the Good Samaritan. Uh, uh, you know, the one you come across is the one to whom you owe the obligation. And this, uh, of course, on this is founded um, the idea of, of national loyalty. Because what is a nation except a group of neighbors? So and that spiritual inheritance, I think, is all important to us. But there is also the idea of secular law which is the, the greatest gift that, 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 that Roman, uh, the Roman Empire left to us, the idea of a secular rule of law, which applies to all of us regardless of our faith and regardless of, uh, uh, of our specific deals that we might have made. Uh, and now, of course, law is very different in the north of Europe from the, uh, from the, the south of Europe, um, although there's a common... Uh, Roman influence on all these. We in in Britain stand out, although uh, uh, not totally, because the Danes are a little bit like us in having a common law system. That's to say, uh, a system of law which grows from the courts rather than in being imposed by the sovereign. It's and that is the real explanation of of uh, English freedom. But nevertheless, the respect for law is something which I think unites the people of Europe and is there even in those like the uh, Sicilians who, who uh, are nevertheless constantly when they can defy it. Um, you know, you, you can respect somebody uh, while cheating on them uh, and this is uh, the, the, the normal Mediterranean way. <laughs> so that, that um, particular aspect I think is something which we all want to hold on to because uh, without it we wouldn't know how to settle our conflicts. Um, and thirdly, this uh, rule of law is, as I say, secular in the sense that it's, it's defined over a territory rather than over religious submission. We obey the law not because it is the law of God, but because it's the law of the land. That's an incredibly powerful idea, uh, and it's enshrined in the English common law more vividly than it is in, in any of the Roman law and, or Napoleonic jurisdictions to the south of us. But I, th I think it's one of the most important things to, to bear in mind. It's where you are, not what you believe, that determines your obligations. Uh, and um, this means, uh, fourthly, that, uh, uh, that, as I say, national identity is the primary form of loyalty that, that we in Europe can envisage. Uh, now all, all politics, I argue, and this is too big a point to, to develop here, uh, depends upon some kind of pre-political loyalty, some sense that we belong together, that we are a first-person plural and not just a collection of self-centered individuals. And this pre-political loyalty has to be non-contractual. I say it's not just a matter of deals that we can get out of uh, when they don't suit us. It's something like, a, like the, the, the vow that binds husband and wife together or children to parents and parents to children. Uh, and this non-contractual bond, I think, that has emerged through the history of Europe is a national one uh, and it's one that we should hold on to and refine 
uh, and if possible remove from, uh, from it all the, the, the potential dangers. Those four features I think are very important but it's from those four features that democracy has emerged. Democracy has emerged from the view that we, ha we share a secular law defined over our shared territory uh, uh, and that this law is man-made therefore can be made by us and it should be made by us because that's the way in which the principle of neighbor love, love of loving your neighbor as yourself is best translated into a political form and I think that is exactly how democracy emerged in Europe and why it doesn't emerge anywhere else except places where the European diaspora have settled so um, th and finally um, I think it is worth emphasizing that we Europeans do have a culture um, of our own uh, 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 which is not just these, these broad political and, uh, and spiritual inheritances, a culture which is manifest in our leisure times, in our, in our ways of communicating with each other, in our sense of the value of human life uh, and uh, this culture is the culture of the city the city um, which was itself a gift to us from Greece and Rome uh, and which came with a wonderful architectural uh, ground plan so to speak which has been followed right up until uh, that awful man Le Corbusier uh, and, and the Bauhaus tried to uh, uh, unfortunately successfully de demolished our architectural inheritance but that, that idea of the city as a place where where, which is the primary human habitation, where we come together and entertain each other uh, um, and give each other things to think about and objects to study, that I think is, um, again, one of the great achievements of Europe. Uh, and one part of the high culture that emerged from this is, of course, the tradition of tonal music. Most people, I think, uh, would not pick on tonal music as the defining feature of uh, European civilization, but um, it, it probably, it certainly is coextensive with European civilization, and it has the lamentable um, property of abolishing all music wherever it, um, uh, wherever it uh, invades, so that. Um, as we know, the, you know the, the beautiful old music of India has been uh, tonalized uh, by, by invasions from Europe. So, but uh, you know, that, that musical tradition is the one thing that binds all Europeans together, uh, enables us to understand our common, our common humanity in a way that perhaps nothing else does. There is a division between Catholic and Protestant which puts the North and the South at loggerheads uh, and there are divisions of other kinds which, put, which, uh, which distinguish us from each other but all of us can sit down in a concert hall or we could do until um, recently and listen to a Beethoven symphony and know that that expresses what we have in common and that thing that we have in common is not just our humanity but also the particular European form of it in which uh, freedom and individual self-criticism have a such a prominent role. So there is my account of Europe. Thank you. Well, Roger, thank you for a wonderfully, a, a very rich um, 
um, set of thoughts and uh, some provocative uh, thoughts as well, which I'm sure you're going to want to take you um, up on. Thanks very much. Um, and um, I'd like to just start off with asking you perhaps a couple of questions, but I'll do them sort of con consecutively. Um, you talked at one point about uh, sort of European or perhaps an EU ideology uh, overcoming um, the national uh, idea, and you regretted that, obviously. Um, you know the slogan, the official slogan of the EU, originally the European Communities, is unity, unity and diversity. And presumably you think that balance hasn't been, uh, hasn't been achieved. Um, but some of the points that you, you made, uh, I think just historically, at least in terms of recent history of the EU, have been a little bit questionable. For example, uh, you talked about the marginalization of the Christian tradition, well, and suggested somehow that the EU institutions were complicit in this. Well, um, it was a decision taken in 2004, the context of the, the failed, what turned out, the failed constitution. Um, the reference to Christianity um, uh, as really defining European identity was removed uh, at, at, the, at the behest of, of France in the first instance. Uh, but of the 24, 25 countries that were taking part in that discussion at the time, I think about five took a different view. As you expect Poland, as I recall, Italy, um, I think Malta, Slovakia, maybe one or two others. Um, uh, but a clear majority went with the French view uh, that um, the EU to express its multiculturalism and its secularity um, its secularism uh, should not actually explicitly give that status to Christianity. And that was a decision taken, therefore, by a majority of the nation states um, of Europe. Uh, similarly, um, uh, you mentioned in the context of the Euro crisis and the drift towards technocracy. Um, yes, pressures on Greece and Italy and Spain and Portugal from outside, but again, it was the nationally elected politicians, the legislatures of Italy and Greece, decided to adopt the austerity packages um, and to have a technocratic government in the case of Italy and a technocratic-led government in the case of Greece. And again, these were clearly democratic decisions of, of sovereign governments in, obviously, whose choices were constrained given the economic environment. But um, I just wonder if it's a bit of an exaggeration to suggest somehow that the, the nation-state has been abolished in this European dispensation you describe it. Well, I, I didn't want to say it had been abolished, obviously. I, I no, wanted well, to point out, nevertheless, that... Um, in the self-consciousness of the European institutions, the Christian idea has been marginalized. Now, you, you might well say that, that in the case of the Constitution, it was the majority of nation states who, who went in with this uh, French initiative to remove the um, reference to Christianity. But let's face it, those decisions are taken by an elite uh, under pressure uh, and uh, they're not ever submitted to uh, anything like a referendum or any kind of real public discussion. Uh, and whenever, and that particular document, when it was submitted to the few countries who, who did have a referendum on it, namely France itself and Holland, it was rejected. Um, you know, you might well say that, that actually this, the people of Europe don't go along with what their elites um, decide for them. And certainly, I think if you uh, submitted to the, to the people of Greece the decisions that are made in their name by their current politicians, uh, they would not go along with it. Um, you know, uh, uh, of course, I, I admit that democracy is a complicated thing. It can't just be done by popular vote all the time or referendum. There, has to, there have to be institutions 
which which mediate between the the, the, um, the leadership and the people. But the particular institutions you're referring to don't don't actually have the endorsement of the people. So there is a, a real problem. That takes into a other question, but um, perhaps we'll come we'll come we'll come back to that. Um, you also said I was interested in what you said about the Enlightenment and sort of wanting to slightly not marginalise it, but sort of suggest that it was problematic because of different strands. Clearly, there's a sceptical rational one, and there's a sort of constructivistic, hubristic, rationalistic one of the French type that you yeah. talk. Um, but without sort of going sort of too much into that, I um, I just wondered if there isn't more affinity between the Enlightenment derived. Um, notion of the individual with the emphasis on ra rationality and so on, uh, and, and incidentally the critical inquiry, which you say is very much part of the European tradition, um, and then the Christian idea of personhood uh, and the soul, um, and uh, we seem to, I mean, just two sides of, of the individual. Do they not sort of feed into each other and complement each other? Is it possible to disentangle them? Surely they're, they're both absolutely essential to, um, if you like, the Western tradition. I think that's a very... Um Profound observation, uh, and I, I would say that more important than the Enlightenment concept of rationality is that Christian idea of personhood, which, let's face it, is um, actually a, another legacy of Rome. The, the word persona comes from Roman law, where it means the individual who stands before the court in judgment as the object of judgment. And it was borrowed from the theatre, because uh, uh, it originally meant a mask, the, the thing through which you talk. So, uh, and it was picked up by Boethius, who was a, a, a Roman philosopher, a late Roman philosopher of, in the Dark Ages, or in the, at least in the years of decline, who was uh, not proper, possibly not a Christian, but um, a monotheist who was profoundly influenced by Christian ideas. Uh, and. Um, to define the human condition. He said that, that that is what we fundamentally are, a person. A substance of a, a rational, an individual substance of a rational nature is how he defined it. And that definition was picked up by St. Thomas Aquinas and became fundamental to the Christian worldview that, that we are individuals, we are substantial. I say that, that we, we, we don't have parts, it's, we are completely integral, integral things. Uh, and we are, have a, we are of a rational nature. And you're right that, that um, without that, the, the Enlightenment would never have occurred. Without that assumption that the human individual is, as it were, the, the center of thinking for himself uh, and the center of decision making. But um, just what, what I, I don't want to, um, I realize we're deep into the history of ideas here. I would just make one small distinction by way of endorsing what I wanted to say, which is the distinction between rational, rationality and reasonableness. Um, Burke, in his response to the French Revolution, defended a kind of reasonableness against what he described as the rationalism of the, of the French revolutionaries. The rationalist is somebody who puts a clear, abstract goal before himself and works out the means to achieve it, and everything has to be subordinated to achieving that goal. And that's what he thought the French revolutionaries were doing, and that they would always go wrong because um, the, the situation was something they couldn't predict. Whereas reasonableness is something which emerges, as it were, socially by an invisible hand, as uh, Adam Smith would say. Uh, and our common law way of doing things in England is a, is a very good example of, of, of reasonableness in action. 
We asked the question, what would be the, the reasonable solution to this particular conflict? And then it creates a precedent and you build on it and so on. But you never have those abstract principles which are supposedly giving you the ultimate answer to it. I mean, the, in, what, in terms of what you want to conserve and perhaps uh, reinvigorate in, in European culture, and you set out a clear set of ideas and preferences and, and values, uh, we're sitting here in a university, um, and to what extent do you think that uh, universities are performing their function of, amongst other things, cultural transmission as well as vocational training and what well, not vocational training, I mean, in university, that's more something for technical schools and business schools. But, um, but um, uh, do you think that, the that our higher education institutions are up to the, the task and meet the challenge of transmitting what is best in our culture? Or do you, you're well aware of the, the sort of the, the, the critique um, of, um, and you're familiar with uh, that narrative of the complaint about the, uh, the uh, overemphasis in process, mm. audit, and what our impact is, uh, the increasing hyper specialization, um, the arguably arid, some of the, the, the arid uh, byways of theory, um, are down which more and more academics. Uh, tempted to stray, not least the reasons for professional advancement. I wonder where you think liberal education and, and the humanities <coughs> and the social sciences within that um, sort of fall uh, sort of, you know, uh, within this and, and whether they are actually sort of derelict, if you like, or at least perhaps mm. even practitioners, ourselves as academics, in, in actually abandoning part of the European or indeed the Western uh, tradition and chasing after these modern false gods. Right. Well, uh, I, I, it's, um, this is a very difficult question, and I, I'm not sure I've got a clear answer to it. Uh, historically speaking, the idea of the universities as being the, the guardians of a cultural inheritance with the obligation to pass it on undamaged, so to speak, that is quite recent. And that is a sort of post-enlightenment uh, idea itself, and really owes what intellectual strength it has to the thinking of the, uh, of the German post-enlightenment. It was you know, it's very much a, a German idea. and uh, Maybe that they have had to assume this role because if you look at, um, say, the, the time of Queen Elizabeth I in this country, we had a very flourishing high culture, very contentious, full of violence and so on, but it was the court that maintained it. Uh, and institutions, as it were, um, flowing out from the court. Universities, well, there were individual colleges and schools, but, uh, but then principally it would be the church who spread this uh, culture among the people. We were very fortunate, in, have been very fortunate in Britain, in that we have this uh, tradition of uh, sending off uh, priests the Anglican Church had this tradition, sending off priests to uh, lonely places all around the countryside um, in order to not to have to trouble oneself with them. Uh, and so you find these, ex these extremely educated people in villages all over the, uh, uh, the kingdom, uh, uh, founding schools and keeping the culture alive. Now, obviously, those historical circumstances have all gone. Uh, and if you took the universities away, the real question is, would anything come to replace them by way of perpetuating the cultural heritage? Um, and that is a, a serious question to which the answer to which I, I don't know. In, in France, had you taken the Sorbonne away, 
during the 50s and 60s, uh, you wouldn't have lost anything. Um, <laughs> uh, you would have still have had Sartre in, uh, drinking himself to death in the Deux Magots, uh, surrounded by loyal disciples uh, uh, who would be going off writing their important novels and doing their important philosophy, etc. You would, there you had a, um, a culture of, uh, of, the, of the intellectual. You know, our universities have been devoted to, to uh, sustaining the culture of the educated person, which is a very different idea. Mm -hmm. uh, and when it comes to the humanities, of course, uh, there is a great difficulty in knowing how you could do you do support them through institutions. Um, we all have all people working in philosophy and literature and so on have to give a, a, accounts uh, of their research. You know, a research assessment and ex exercise, whatever it's called. Excellence framework. Excellence <coughs> framework. You know, there isn't such a thing as research in the humanities. There is scholarship, you know. There may be in this or that area research into, you know, the early manuscripts of Thomas the Diaphragm or something, which would be of interest to a few people, but not of general interest and not a, not a necessary thing to perpetuate the message of Thomas the Diaphragm. A, a final question for me, and I promise to shut up. But um, is there such a thing as a European, or could there be such a thing as a European political culture that's an elusive demos, something which could conceivably, uh, at some point in the future, sustain a more politically integrated Europe, or is this just a, a will of the wisp? Well, I think this is the question, that the, the, the hidden agenda of what I was saying. Really, I was asked. That was the question that I'm sort of asking by not asking it, so to speak. Uh, it, it, uh, my view is that that um, there cannot be a Europe-wide pre-political loyalty that would be strong enough to sustain that. Um, pre-political loyalties are historically given, and they build up over time. Uh, they're not—you can't decide upon them, um, and attempts to decide upon them always you know, collapse. In, in tears in the end. Could you just say a bit more what you mean by pre-political pre, pre loyalty? Uh, I mean, a sense of, the, of who we are, the, the first person plural, which enables one person to lay down his life for another whom he doesn't know, which is what happens in wartime. You know, this is a very amazing thing that people do it, um, and did do it, uh, and um, Obviously, the European idea is that there won't be wars again, which is, I suspect, somewhat naive. Um, but but it, even without wars, people need that sense of the first-person plural if they are to make sacrifices. As you say, give up something in order that someone, some stranger should benefit. It's a very difficult thing for people to do. That is the principle of neighbor love, as I say. And it's, it is easier to do when you have a shared language, shared history, uh, um, um, defined neighbourhoods, uh, um, defined ways of doing things. But uh, when you take all boundaries away, you probably take that away too. Thank you. Um, we've got about half an hour for questions um, from yourselves. Um, uh, would anyone, um, if anyone would like to ask a question, please... Um, indicate that you would um, and place your um, and just wait for the roving mic. Please say who you are and what your uh, affiliation is if you have one. And keep it short and sweet, please. Okay, thank you. Yes, the gentleman just there, I think was on first two. Yeah, we'll take them consent.
Hello, um, my name is Rustam Marani. I'm just a visitor. I have no affiliation with anyone. Um, you just touched upon it in the end on war. I wonder whether you, I mean, in the last century, obviously 10% of the century was taken up by all encompassing wars. I wonder whether the recent culture of Europe is in fact elevating the scale of war in a way that's never happened before in history. I'm not sure whether that microphone is working. Uh, uh, is it? Yeah, okay. Uh, do, do, do we want to take several questions? Or you want me to? I, I, okay, no. I'll I think we'll take them consecutively. I mean, oh, okay, yeah, sorry. Yeah, yeah I understand. Yeah. So. Uh, yes, um, it's very difficult to know, to predict things, isn't it? Uh, uh, the <coughs> we, we should remember that after the uh, Congress of Vienna uh, and the peace that was established then in Europe, there was 70 years, more or less, without war. <coughs> Um, and when war came, it came in three successive wars, all of them initiated by Germany. Um, uh, um, you, you might say that Germany's position as an aggressor was itself a response to Napoleon's behavior of a hundred years before, or whatever, but um, those, that, 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 those circumstances seem to have changed. We don't have a, a clearly identified aggressor anymore within the European frame. Uh, we do, of course, have the growing threat from uh, Iran, which, um, which could spill over into Europe. You don't, we don't know about that. Uh, the, the question, though, is whether the recent culture of Europe makes war not more likely, but, but more devastating if it occurs. Uh, it would certainly have the character more of a civil war than a nation-to-nation uh, -nation -nation war. Uh, and, of course, it would be very difficult to, to secure peace, given that so many institutions have been uh, confiscated by the European machine, the institutions through which people make peace. peace uh, um, it would be difficult for one nation just to, to sit down with another and decide on things. So it could be that it would make war, war worse. I just don't know. Uh, but the, of course, if that were, the, were so, the whole European project is absurd. Because the, the European project, that's its fundamental ground of its legitimacy is that it's making Europe safe. Uh, and uh, I would like to think that it, although I did, don't think the institutions are the right ones, something like this is necessary to make Europe safe. Thank you. Another question. Yes, lady then in the blue. Hi, my name is Kaylee. I'm a postgrad student at the European Institute here. And I was wondering what you were saying about reasonableness and common law and how that's an expression of what is socially accepted as reasonable. Mm. And this seems quite surprising to me as in the 20th century in Europe has shown us that what is socially accepted as reasonable often isn't reasonable at all. So, I mean, how do you coincide those two ideas? Um, can you give an example of what is socially acceptable but, acceptable but not reasonable? Well, if you look in the Netherlands now, I'm Dutch, it seems acceptable to be discriminated, uh, discriminatory towards Eastern Europeans. There's even a website on which you can right. post your complaints, and that's something people seem to accept because, you know, they're stealing my job or mm. stuff like that. And, I mean, that's socially acceptable. Yes, I, I, I mean, th th this is a very... 
may be socially acceptable that um, in, in certain circumstances but what I meant by reasonable was something like this that, that you know, when people uh, when people sit down with a difficulty like um, a, a man and woman have quarrelled you know, husband and wife have quarrelled and sit down uh, they have no principles for resolving their dispute but they each were prepared to give up something in order to satisfy the, uh, to gain the acceptance of the other uh, a solution emerges by, con by consent eventually it's not the solution that any of them would have predicted in advance or imposed through um, some rational procedure that's what I meant by reasonableness that kind of way of solving conflicts you're, you're worrying about a specific form of, of conduct in, a, in your particular nation which um, about which there's as, I, as you know many different views as to whether you know those who would say that the, that it's um, unreasonable to be, to behave in the way that I, th I think it's Geert Wilders who's put this website up, isn't it? Uh, those who would say it's unreasonable to do this would also say that it's not socially acceptable. I suspect um, it, it might be accepted in certain areas, but most people, I think you would, you are probably implying that you don't find it socially acceptable. Uh, so I think these two ideas probably go together. Thank you. Another question. Yes, the lady there. Um, hi, I'm, my name is Marianne. I'm doing a PhD at King's College. Um, I was just wondering if you could say something um, else about the first of your six principles, love thy neighbor, because I was surprised to see you equate that um, with national identity, because what came to my mind immediately was precisely the idea of cosmopolitanism, something that came from the Stoics and then again being developed in the Enlightenment and now today. So um, thinking of um, European identity or form of identification with Europe that is precisely transnational and cosmopolitan in the sense of love thy neighbor, so love everyone who is, even those who are not like you, so not from your nation? Well, that is a very good question. Uh, my, my view is that, um, that there are these two ongoing interpretations of the parable of the Good Samaritan. One says that the emphasis of this parable is upon the universal nature of the law, love thy neighbors thyself. The other says that the emphasis is on the particular, the fact that it's the, the neighbor, the one you come across. You know, the, the, uh, you, uh, the, this, the wounded uh, person was come across, uh, the Samaritan came across that particular person whom others had ignored and was prepared to devote to him all kinds of uh, resources that might have been better spent elsewhere, you may say. Um, my view is that you don't have to decide between these two. Uh, there is a universal moral law here but there is also the question of its particular application. Uh, people, um, uh, the danger is to emphasize the universal law to, uh, to such a point that it becomes a mere abstraction which defines no particular duties. So you never actually come across a neighbor. Uh, all you come across is the abstract human being. Uh, this is what um, Shelley say, said. There's uh, a line of Shelley which is, man, yes, not men. You know, uh, that's, it's not the individual people that he comes across, but the abstract idea that inspires him. 
And I think uh, that's the danger of cosmopolitanism. And the reason why I emphasize it, the nation is because it is a, it is a, a community of neighbors. Richard Brown. Hello there, Richard Bronk, European Institute. A couple of things I wanted to pick up in your fascinating and eloquent talk, challenge you on a bit. One was um, in your, your, I think, slightly absolutist condemnation of the Monti and Papademos governments. Um, anyone who'd heard Monti give his talk here at the LSE a few weeks ago would have been, I think, very struck by his respect for the electorate and um, any direct comparison between him and the last Prime Minister of Italy with his almost total control of the media, etc., um, might not uh, indicate one isn't necessarily, uh, obviously, a worse example of democracy. But also, most of Obama's administration in any U.S. cabinet is appointed. Many British prime ministers have been appointed, uh, like Salisbury, for example. The key thing is whether you have parliamentary control of legislation, which is still the case, of course, in Italy and Greece. Um, the second point I wanted to just challenge you on was I, I found very interesting your idea that Europe is at its best as a complementary balance between two things, Roman secularism and Judeo-Christian monotheism. Mm. But isn't Europe at its best culturally a balance between a number of other things too, the Enlightenment and Romanticism, individualism and community, economic growth and culture, and also, yes, national identity, but also cooperation between nations. And whenever that balance has been lost, Europe has been in dire straits. Yes, well, uh, I, I suppose, uh, you, you're, I'm sure you're absolutely right that um, one shouldn't uh, assimilate Greece to Italy uh, as though they were the same kind of case. Uh, and you, it could be that, uh, indeed, the, um, there's more respect from the uh, Greek political elite towards the electorate than there, there was from Berlusconi towards the Italian electorate. That's partly because there couldn't be less respect. Um, but uh, on the other hand, all I meant to say was look, here is an interesting development in the European process that, uh, that uh, democratically elected governments are being, as it were, called in to account for themselves to something supposedly higher than themselves. And when they don't live up to it, they're told what to do. And that is a new thing. Uh, uh, and it's not something that I welcome, and I don't think it is some, anything that the Greek or Italian people have welcomed either. Um, you're right. When I, I, I picked out six features of Europe, which I wanted to, the European inheritance that I wanted to emphasize, there are lots of others. Uh, and um, you can go on adding to that list. Um, you know, uh, there's just there is so much uh, that, that we could say. There's opera, for instance. You know, where else does that exist? Uh, and what would what would modern Europe be without opera? Um, okay, it's now being desecrated by the Royal Opera House and places like that. But you know, <laughs> the, um, the the uh, the idea of an operatic uh, presentation of the human condition is there in all of us, uh, even in this low low grade form of the musical. You know. So, but I, I, I still want to say that some of these things are, are more peripheral and others are more central and I think maybe one could make one's choice. Uh, um, romanticism is a very important thing, but um, um, again, I think it's a, it's a recent thing. You, many people would say that, that um, it's something we're still living through. Uh, 
precise about tonal music, of course, mm. atonal music also came out of Europe, Schoenberg yes. and so on. Um, but clearly it has a reach and appeal uh, well outside Europe as well. Yes. I mean, Bach is loved in Japan, yes. and the conductors, performers of Bach, um, seem to have the same sort of the ear or the mm. wiring, it seems to be roughly the same as Europeans. Yes. And maybe that's just a mark of a genius as an artist, that they can actually speak mm. uh, across, uh, across cultures. But it wouldn't seem to be something defining, I mean, obviously Bach was a European, but in any more serious or extensive sense, it doesn't, does it seem to make any sense to um, you know, put so much emphasis on... Well, I, I, I did mention this, that, uh, that when uh, Western music hits another uh, country, it, it sweeps away the indigenous music straight away, uh, which is a, a tragedy, especially in, in, in Japan and, and China and, in, and India. But um, it, it could be that, 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 that there, is, there are elements of discovery here, the discovery of the 12-note 12, the 12 chromatic scale of equal, equal intervals, uh, and therefore of modulation between keys. These are very, um, this emerged during the um, 14th, 15th century, uh, and was finally, obviously, um, solidified by Bach in, in the 48. Yeah, and, the, and the, the, there's something, maybe something in the uh, cognitive capacities of the brain which answers to this, uh, alas. You know, so it means that, uh, that, 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 that that spread across the globe. Um, however, it is interesting that apart from Takemitsu, there's almost nothing has come back to us from Japan and China. It's, you know, we've um, the, our music has colonised them, but they haven't colonised it. Why, why might that be? Um, I one, one, I'd like to ask you also about universalism and European values both through Christianity and particularly through the Enlightenment thought to be universal values or indeed Western, mm -hmm. um, sort of the Western narrative is that Western values are ultimately universal values or have the ability to appeal to everyone. Of course um, there has been, we supposedly live now in a postmodern uh, epoch or at least um, some scholars and not perhaps scholars or, but anyway, academics and universities not least in American um, Ivy League and liberal arts and university and liberal arts college colleges tell us that there are no such things as absolute values, everything is culturally and morally relative, um, and so on. And I just wonder, uh, first of all, do you think that, that, um, that, that there has been a, an inexorable trend in that direction, which in some sense corrosive or undermining of European <coughs> values and its universal vocation? And if that is the case, um, to what extent could that be attributed to the decline of, of religion? Is it possible to sustain um, a set of universal values just through an Enlightenment-based narrative? Um, and, and absolute values, mm. or do you need religion to sustain those values? Uh, again, this is, uh, I wish I had an answer to this. Uh, obviously, people like Lyotard tell us that the, all the grand narratives no longer have any authority, and without them, uh, our values are, have no foundation, uh, and we can just slip from one to the other uh, without uh, being having any particular grounds for settling on one of them rather than the other. Um, usually when people say that, they go on to make um, criticisms of people who don't believe it. Uh, and either those criticisms are nonsense or, or they are founded on some set of values which have authority. So um, it's a bit like Nietzsche. Nietzsche said there are no truths, only interpretations. I want to respond, you know, is that true? You know, uh, and uh, the, uh, 
because then you realize that the whole thing is a fabrication. You can't, you can't actually think like this. So there's a, a game that people play, a game of relativism, which uh, they don't themselves adhere to. Uh, and, uh, of course, what, of course it doesn't alter the fact that it might be difficult to find that foundation without religion, and maybe you can't. Uh, but if that is so, that would be an argument for some kind of religious truth. And that, that if that's what gives you the foundation with which, you, with which to live, then that's an argument in, in favor of its truth. And that's what Kant thought. Uh, you know, um, and he thought that the moral law pointed us to God. Uh, and, uh, you know, I suspect he's right. More questions? Are there any at the back, Mr. Gentleman, right, yeah, right at the back. Hello, my name is Kostov Bhattacharya. I'm a doctoral researcher at the Caspersen School. Um, you have talked about the uh, illegitimacy of the empires, uh, in, uh, as in Eric Hobsbawm's book. Yeah. Uh, now, in the last 10 years, do you think the concept of empire has gained legitimacy with a new generation of historians treating empire as governance systems and lo loads of uh, or plethora of television programs mm -hmm. depicting how the vestiges or the legacies of empires have been absorbed by the host countries and been integrated in the mainstream functioning. So do you think the uh, idea of empire has become fashionable again, should we say? Yes. That's a very interesting question. I, the idea could become fashionable without being approved of, of course, um, but I suspect it has become fashionable and also people are beginning to see that there are two sides to the question of empire, that, that it isn't all bad. Uh, and indeed, when we look back at the Roman Empire, I think most of us think, that it's, uh, in its greater moment, moments, that this really was uh, a great human achievement to have produced peace all across the Mediterranean. Okay, it was peace plus crucifixions, but still, uh, that's better than, than war as, it, as, as war occurred then. Uh, and, uh, you know, there's always going to be uh, some kind of uh, dark side, whatever is done. Uh, and uh, if you look at, um, say, at the Austro-Hungarian Empire in the 19th century, uh, you will see uh, a most wonderful expansion of the European idea uh, and of this the self-critical and self-consciousness, self-conscious way of looking at things that I've been describing. Um, and you can only see the, you know, the, the pistol shot at Sarajevo as, uh, uh, as a disaster when you see what, what, what happened as a result. You know, this great empire in which separate nations were beginning to, beginning to define their boundaries and their cultural inheritance was suddenly uh, cast loose of its um, all authority. And I think one of the most important pieces of European literature is the, the post-Austro-Hungarian uh, literature written in the, um, the former Austro-Hungarian Empire. People like uh, Horvath and Zweig uh, and Mahoy and so, so on. People who are, who are looking back on what, on what they had lost uh, and um, telling us that this really was the human soul at its most poignant. Uh, and most beautiful, the, uh, the soul that you find in Mahler's symphonies, for, for example. Uh, and uh, I, I think that's true. Thank you. More questions? Yes. Um, Florence. 
Thank you, Florence Deloche-Godez, visiting fellow at LSE. Um, I would like to go back to your critical views of uh, European integration. Um, admittedly, I will agree with you um, on the idea that uh, European citizens do not have enough power in the decision-making process and that Europeans might have underestimated the difficulty of building um, Europe with so many languages. But uh, listening to your criticism, I was wondering if you were not typically European with this dissatisfaction, constant uh, inquiry, and wouldn't you agree that there is still um, within EU institutions two features that you described as crucial, that is one, respect for the law, law of a, a territory, a law that we make us um, all together, and I would not say love for your neighbors, but still we, we are bound to talk with our neighbors and to learn from uh, what our neighbors do within Europe. I think I, I entirely agree with that. I think I was trying to say it, perhaps not as clearly as I should have done, that there is, that I am as, as European as any Frenchman, uh, and uh, I, I'm one of the things that we have in common is this, not just the um, idea of the rule of the territorial rule of law, but also the idea that we settle our disputes by negotiation and compromise, and not by dictatorship. In other words, solutions to problems come from below in some way and not from above. And I think that my criticisms of the European Union institutions is that they do try and impose solutions from, from above uh, and not, don't allow them to emerge from below. Um, and this is something you know, uh, which I think is widely felt, but how to express it in, in, in words that don't offend is the difficult matter. <coughs> We've got another five minutes. Um, I'd like to take another, uh, another question. Yes, right at, right at the back, Roche. Uh, hi. Rokhodin uh, Vonsovic, I'm a PhD student at the European Institute. I was uh, actually wanting to go back to your definition of the six key features of, of today's Europe and, uh, and uh, the tension between religious, uh, heritage, religious affirmation and the rule of law, which you yourself noted in terms of gay rights or women's uh, reproductive rights, and those are issues that are still valid. So I was wondering that taking both into account, would you assert the supremacy of the rule of law or not? Mm. Uh, yes, uh, obviously it, the, that is how we live. Uh, sometimes uh, the there, there, there are always going to be tensions. And you take, the, for example, the, the case of um, of abortion, where Christians think this is absolutely forbidden, or some Christians at least, or, or that in many, very many cases at least, it's, it's forbidden. Uh, and um, yet, there is a legally defined right on the part of the woman to do this. I think um, it would certainly be the case in this country that Christians would say, uh, yes, um, uh, th that if she has a right to do it um, in, in law, then I cannot stop her. Um, but it doesn't prevent me from thinking that what she's doing is wrong or trying myself to, to, to dissuade her. I think that is the, the way in which um, 
which these disputes have always been uh, adjudicated in our country. It's moved, obviously it shifts from uh, generation to generation as to where the particular um, point of confrontation is. And, and certainly Christians will, will lobby Parliament to change the law, but until the law is changed, uh, that they won't uh, regard themselves as having any uh, right to interfere with it. Roger, if I may, just um, using sort of moderator's prerogative, I'd like to ask what will be, I suspect, a final question. We have only two or three minutes. I just to ask you, um, can anyone be a European? Yes. Um, well, you can't, I, I couldn't, if I'd been born and bred in the middle of India, say, speaking an, an, an Indian language, I, I'm, I've been reading about the marvels of Europe in, in, in whatever library was available to me. I couldn't then just declare myself to be European. If, however, I, I struggled uh, free from my community, made the long trek to Europe, settled down, um, perhaps married and had children, um, yes, I'm on, the pr I'm on the way to becoming European. That's how most of the people, uh, how the ancestors of all the people in this room became European. But you're, so you're invoking, I mean, rootedness has to be part of it. You can't just be uh, adhering to a set of values which are recognised in Europe. Well, no, I think that, I think it's extremely interesting uh, um, we've all we've all seen this in the in 19th century Russia, the, the, the attempt by the Russian elites to define themselves as European because they adhere to the values of the Enlightenment. Um, and look what a mess they made, um, you know, because they didn't take into account the fact that they were there in that particular society governed. Was viscerally by the Orthodox Church and the, um, these huge distances and these um, primitive tribal communities on the edge of things and so on and they didn't succeed in being European all they managed to do was to pick up the worst product of 19th century thinking and make it into a system of tyrannical government well, on that note, um, just, before, just before I ask you to show our appreciation to uh, Roger for what's been really a fascinating hour and a half, um, there are two of his latest books um, on sale outside. Uh, one is Green Philosophy, which is, is, as I mentioned earlier, is that small c conservative take um, on um, or attempt to wrest back from um, another political constituency, the notion of conservation uh, and of uh, and of, of and of, of, of well, just that green philosophy. Uh, the other one, I, book I strongly commend to you is uh, his book on the uses of pessimism, which is one of the most uplifting and uh, positive books. Uh, it, it really is, which you could, and, or at least a way of reconciling yourself in a reasonably happy way to the human condition, uh, which certainly that I've ever read. Uh, they're both on sale outside and available for your perusal. Roger, thank you again for giving us a marvellous hour and a half. You've got the Literary Festival off to a, a splendid start, and we're most, most grateful to you. Thank you.